Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. If you could leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast, Apple, Spotify, anywhere else, it goes a long way. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, let's get to today's episode. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. What's up, guys? JD here. We have a really good episode today and kind of different from what we normally do. Today, we are talking cryptocurrency. So we're sitting down with Roger Huang, who covers crypto for Forbes. Roger's written for TechCrunch, Fast Company, Inc. And admittedly, I am very far from a cryptocurrency expert. I've been critical on it in the past. I haven't gotten it, but I've been trying to learn more and more about it over the last couple of years. And when I met Roger, I thought, okay, this is someone who has a really different perspective on it and can explain it in a way probably that you haven't thought about. And I'll admit, over the last hour of talking to him, I did shift my thinking on a few things. I was critical on a couple points. And Roger's perspective actually makes you think a different way. So give it a listen. One more thing. Some of the terms that Roger uses, he's obviously an expert on this. So he talks about lightning. He talks about ICOs, initial coin offerings. We will explain what these things are throughout the episode. So stay tuned. Don't be too intimidated by it. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Take a listen. Roger Huang, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a few weeks. We met two months ago. We had to reschedule this. We actually had the first recording on the day of the major outage in Canada. Like Our internet went out for like yeah. 24 hours. So uh, I really appreciate you setting this up again. So quick intro for the audience. You cover crypto for Forbes, TechCrunch, Fast Company, Inc. You've been writing about this for a long time. I'm somebody who's been following crypto for a while, but really have not understood it. So I'm looking forward to this. And I guess the first thing I'm going to ask you just for myself and for the audience is, let's start off with a quick overview and just some definitions. So what is crypto today? So first, I just wanted to point out that it's fortuitous that you kind of pointed out that our first recording was canceled on the day that Canada's payment network e-transfer actually went down for an entire day. So I just wanted to to quickly start with that. No no irony there. (laughs) No irony there. We are talking about cryptocurrencies and digital currencies. So I just wanted to kind of bring that up first. But yeah, in terms of definitions, there are a lot in the space. I think when you're thinking about cryptocurrencies, that could be anything from... I think really the divergence really began when Ethereum emerged. There had been a few kind of like projects. I actually wrote about one way back in the day called PotCoin. That was kind of like, there were these like Bitcoin clones that were flavored or colored in a different way. So I think that's kind of how you you can think about cryptocurrencies. Now, crypto itself, I mean, a lot of people still use it to refer to just encryption just in general, which is kind of public key architecture, just like how communications or any data can be stored and transmitted securely. But if we're talking about cryptocurrencies, you know, we're mostly talking about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then Ethereum out of the ecosystem of that, the different tokens that have emerged. That and have, would, would NFTs yeah. be included in that bucket also? I think NFTs are a use case. Typically, a lot of people look at the technology as something where it's a token that holds digital value of some kind that stems from a distributed data store, like a data store that arrives to consensus. I know I might be saying words that obscure rather than 
illuminate at this point. But I think, yeah, NFTs are a use case. NFTs are essentially like a digital, they're a bearer asset, right? So if you um, have an asset, right, that shows that you own it and tokens or the same system that creates digital tokens and digital scarcity can then be used to enforce whatever. The basic thing of NFTs is like, it takes the idea of Ethereum and Bitcoin and creating digital value through enforcing digital scarcity and just applies it to physical analogs. So right. it just maps that. So yeah, in that sense, I would say NFTs are a use case of cryptocurrencies. And most of them are built on Ethereum at this point, although there's a few projects in Bitcoin as well. Yeah. And so you mentioned like cryptography and crypto has been around for a very long time. It's not a new thing. What is it about the last five or 10 years that made it emerge as something that we're talking about right now? Yeah. So I want to be careful there. So cryptography has been around for like a long time, right? Like Helmut Diffie, all that stuff. I mean, cryptography is what powers the modern web as we know it in the sense of e-commerce. Anytime you're trying to transact money, if you want to have secure communications, that's just like table stakes at this point. Why we're talking more and more about cryptocurrency is this idea of, and I want to be careful to use the words. I think there's like a lot of definitions that have to go with it, but there's a decentralized non-intermediary store of value for the internet that hasn't really existed. I mean, there were different early experiments around the same time cryptography was being implemented around the web. You had like e-gold, all kinds of stuff like that. David Shaw, all kinds of research. But I think Bitcoin is the first payments network that reached scale when it came to digital value that wasn't issued by like a central authority. It wasn't issued by a central bank. It wasn't issued by a banking system in a country. It truly right. was something that kind of like organically stemmed. So I think the reason why we're talking about it so much is that there's network, you know, which was created just at least a decade plus. The Bitcoin paper was 09, 08, around there? 09, 09. 09, yeah. yeah. So like, yeah. if I were to just kind of take a step back, what we think of as money or currency today is primarily a country, a government saying, hey, here's a dollar, or here's a one, or here's a, a euro, here's a pound. It's worth X. You yeah. can buy X with it. And the Actually, government... I'm taking a quick backpack myself. Bitcoin white paper, October 31st, 2008. I was... Okay. Myself, 2009. But anyways. So you have this government's issuing currency... And now what we're saying is there's a currency that can be issued by this party, third party, whatever you call it, that can't, after the fact, intercept it. We can't make more of it. We can't take it away. We can't do anything with it. So it makes it really... you know, Some people would say it's totally ungoverned, but some would say the fact that it's ungoverned actually makes it more secure. Am I on the right path there? And it's a different question than what you were asking me before. So let me first like try to close the loop on on like why we're talking about it. We're talking about more because there's more price, there's more activity, there's more... The network has grown and it's the first scaled out version of what you described. So then moving on, okay, in terms of it being ungovernable, I don't think it's ungoverned. I think that the form of government or the form of governance is different than what we're used to because there are no intermediaries. But there is still like an interplay between different people in terms of how the network's rules are set. Like the network is not a tablet handed down from the sky. You know, there are rules that govern it. Some of them you've alluded to, for example, the scarcity, the 21 million limit, and everything like that. But, you know, you've seen throughout Bitcoin's history, maybe earlier on in its history, and then certainly later on. And then in Ethereum, you of course had like the split, 
very early on between Ethereum Classic and then what's called Ethereum now. So like these networks aren't static and they have governance. They have miners that secure secure the network. They have people contributing code. There are people running nodes. It's just a different form of governance. So it'd be fair to say the governance is not central. It can't be corrupted in the same way that like a currency traditionally could be corrupted. Would that be accurate? Yeah, it's tending towards what I like to think about is like tending towards decentralization. That's a very big word, right? I think the one thing that Bitcoiners and some cryptocurrency people think of a lot is like, okay, well, how do we start from a default of getting rid of intermediaries, right? Like, so it obviously in a currency, let's say in your most extreme example, although again, corruption is a word with a lot of nuance too, but let's say there was a very corrupt country that set its monetary policy according to the interests of its political elite. I would submit to you that happens everywhere. But let's just in this example, paint like the most extreme example, right? It's like centralized. There's like a governing council of like seven or eight individuals who are very close to the political authorities. And they all just kind of are in cahoots with one another to benefit themselves, right? Say at an extreme, like they're printing currency to benefit just all eight or nine or 10 of these governing council people. Their, their companies and their individual interests. Their companies and their individuals. And I say this is an extreme example, but there are so many instances of, just to give you a quick example, when I was writing about Nigeria and the NSARS protests, like the people who are on the central bank board are also on the boards of the payment processors. We're also talking to like the president. So whenever there's political authorities that say like, we need you to crack down on this, this, this payment network, then that actually does happen. So it's not that far off the mark to say that and this is kind of a little bit of a wonky interpretation, but close to what the world is like. In that example, though, you have very centralized, there's like seven people making decisions for, you know, maybe like 100,000, 200,000 or however many people, right? And they're making them for the betterment themselves. With cryptocurrencies, the idea is to really try to get away from that so that you can issue value without needing to feed that intermediary layer, which may or may not be corrupt, right? I mean, intermediaries should be displaced for any number of reasons. One of them could be that they are corrupt nodes, that they are like extracting a ton more value. That is also right. a thesis. I mean, if we think they're, about they're, it, I was going to say they're extracting value without adding value. So like to take this and your, your example, the extreme example is one that makes sense. There are lots of countries that frankly are corrupt, lots of governments. But you also could use an example of if I'm sending money from person A to person B, and I'm doing that yeah. via a wire transfer, which is a common way to do it today, or a check yeah. even, doing it via the crypto method would be just much more efficient. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look at like companies like Western Union, for example. And, and you know, what's interesting is that I think one thing I want to highlight in this interview is that with Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything, at the beginning, it was superior to everything. Like PayPal fees were much higher, everything like that. There was a phase of time where the adoption of both technologies and other cryptocurrencies, all the fervor around I- ICOs, I think we might cover that sometime down, down in this list of questions. But that actually created a lot of excess network activity and speculation that then like, you know, transaction fees are really high on Ethereum. You can think of gas. And then on right. Bitcoin, you can think of just the, the transaction fees are quite high. But I actually think we are now emerging into a world back where, for example, Bitcoin as a monetary network is really settling into you see like the lightning network, you see off-chain transactions, you see like the promise is not only in your example, you know, we're getting rid of intermediaries because they are unduly 
corrupt. And so it's like an easy example to paint. But even I would argue, like, some of us may have very low opinions of like the banking system in general, right? I happen to be one of those people for like any number of reasons. But you don't have to be me or someone like me in order to think like, hey, like exactly what you thought, like wire transfers are expensive. They take a lot of time. Even e-transfer, it's kind of crazy. It takes like 30 or 40 minutes to confirm. I need to pay the bank like a certain fee in order to like maintain accounts. I may not have accounts. I may not be able to get an account because I'm stateless or I don't have permissions in some way. So there's any number of reasons for why the conventional financial system intermediaries don't work for other people transmitting value to each other, right? right? That have nothing really to do with like extreme corruption. And I think like with Lightning, transaction fees being so low, like if you're sending like a few Satoshis, which are like a small micro unit of Bitcoin, right? And you're sending that, your transfer fees could be like very, very, very nominal and certainly lower than like, for example, PayPal, certainly lower than Western Union, certainly lower than like a whole bunch of other different companies. Strike, for example, default is to charge, I believe, like 3%. Right. So let, let me ask you this then, because this kind of gets... I'm going to kind of skip to the end here. This is the thing that's never never made sense to me about cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. Let's just say Bitcoin, because that's the biggest one. And I'm not sure if there's a simple answer or if the answer is you know, incredibly robust. But what I'm not understanding is I keep hearing the argument of it's much easier to transfer funds via cryptocurrency. I can send a Bitcoin instantly, no intermediaries, doesn't take any time. Yes, there's gas fees for those listeners. Those are the fees that are incurred when you send... That's for Ethereum. It's for, for Ethereum, Ethereum sorry. Yeah. yeah. But the thing that I can't wrap my head around is we're not talking about an actual currency as would be defined today. Like, let's just take the American dollar, which is globally accepted and is backed up by whatever system, the American economy, GDP, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't just take somebody moving from like a traditional bank to crypto land. It takes them totally changing that they're, you know, what they think of as money and what they trust as money. Is yeah. that like a big problem to solve or am I making a problem out of nothing? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we have to go all the way to the fundamentals, right? Like currency, what is that? Unit of account, medium of exchange, store of value, right? And I think Bitcoin, a lot of people are... And it depends on like how bullish you are and how like immersed in the ecosystem you are. I don't think... We actually live in a very unique period in our history where currencies are associated with governments by default, right? And then you have the Federal Reserve. That actually isn't necessarily true for many different periods of our governance. For example, a lot of private banks and institutions used to issue currencies. I know a lot of, I graduated in economics, so that period of time is kind of disparaged as like wildcat banking and like et cetera, and this and that. So you can think of you know, central banking, really, the way that we think about it, and the US kind of like world, like dollar led order as a very unique moment. I think that's like sometimes what we forget, right? Like the way we think about currency is so mediated by what we see surrounded by us. And that's the US dollar by extension, other currencies that are trying to behave like the US dollar, whether it's the euro, the eurozone kind of commissioning and editing, or whether it is the yuan, the Chinese yuan. So I think that what we flavor as currency was very mediated by like this moment, which is very different because, for example, the currencies that we have now are not backed by any, there is no like limit on them. Like in theory, like right. could apply, could, 
the best example of that would be like the last two, three years, the government just printed money because they needed money. And of course, now we're in this massive inflationary period. But you're right. I guess there's just... And what you said a moment ago actually resonates because I'm thinking to myself, you know, like a thousand years ago, you would have bought something by giving them your goat or giving them a piece of leather. So yes, currency has changed over the years. Yeah, but I guess that's the one thing that I, I haven't heard a good solve for. And I guess you're right. The solve could be people have to change the way they think about what currency is. Yeah, and I mean, some of it is going to... I, I've proposed and what I've written, I think there's going to be like a Cairns group. Are you from the Cairns group? I don't know if I'm pronouncing uh, it. Pro, no, they're, like yeah. kind of, they're like kind of like a group of countries. Canada's actually part of it that okay. are like, kind of like agriculture oriented. So it's like this like kind of lobby group of like countries that are agriculturally... So I do think one thing that's kind of interesting to think about is like where the rituals of old times serve. Like, for example, for me, is like why we call stores of digital value wallets. Like that doesn't necessarily make sense. It just is what we like. We index from the old system into the new system. So similar to that, I do think currency, we have to go through that rethink. One thing I saw, for example, is in Hong Kong. What's really interesting is I actually went and saw people buy Bitcoin and it's very ritualized, but in a way that it doesn't have to be. Because like, you know, the whole premise of it is that you could go on, you could buy Bitcoin or, you know, get it from anyone. You can mine it yourself. And you don't really need like a third party to like, but in Hong Kong, where I saw this transaction happen, it was really interesting because you had people, this person showed up, obviously high net worth individual. She's on there checking out the laptop. She has like a guide helping her. They're like giving her like drinks, they're giving her tea, they're serving her like HSBC might serve a client, right? So I find that interesting because that none of that has to happen. And we didn't have like people didn't have to call it a wallet, but it's kind of like transposing parts of the old architecture. There's like this difference between, you know, when people change, right? There's like the comfort level and then the change they're willing to accept. And so similar to that, I think currency, the idea of it, I think it's gonna be melded. So two things are happening that I think will help with this. The first is that currency is becoming more multilateral. You see this in just like even the conventional financial infrastructure with the IMF and the basket of currencies. I think a lot of people are on board with the US dollar and migrating that to a more balanced bucket, right? This is central banks. Israel, for example, decided to embrace the yuan as part of their bucket. So that's happening. So then the the definition of currency, I think, is, is stretching there. And then you have countries that are actually adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. So for example, both El Salvador and the Central African Republic, I think there's going to be more for other various reasons. And so again, this is like an area, you don't need countries to really adopt Bitcoin for it to be a currency. You know, it, it can be a medium of exchange between different individuals. But right. and then how do you get around, how do you pay tax, which is a big piece of everyone's expenses? Well, those are two different questions. But... I don't want to go down between different roads here, but I guess let's answer that question. And then I want to get into some interesting companies that that you see doing innovation. Yeah. So again, it's like feeling like a currency, right? So what you're describing is actually kind of like the first, at least the tax. So the expenses part is like, you need adoption on like the merchant side, right? I think you're already starting to see that. And some of that involves like, you know, you have a better payment stack. BTC pay, I think is like a really interesting solution for vendors especially vendors that are used to getting cut off, I think arbitrarily by PayPal or something like that. You know, PayPal will arbitrarily cut people off for any number of reasons. And sometimes in some countries, I have to submit Canada as one of them. If you're setting up a business, 
you don't have like a physical location, right? It's actually impossible for you to get terminals, right? So if you're a street food vendor, for example, and I think it's going to spread more and more. I mean, there's, there's businesses here. I think there's actually one of my friends is mapping out all the businesses that accept Bitcoin and lightning network. And there's those use cases I mentioned, there's like people who are doing haircuts. There's like a barbershop up here in Vancouver. I'm not going to say like, it's like very easy to go and spend Bitcoin, at least in the analog world, but it is happening. And there are more and more people kind of adopting it, more resources around that. So I think that's what's happening there. The taxes part is an interesting question. I think that there are some countries where you will be able to, there are some states and countries where you'll be able to pay in Bitcoin. That is happening already. I think there's certain states in the United States, for example, that are deciding that you can pay state taxes, not federal taxes. Maybe Florida. Yeah, I think Wyoming for sure, I think is one that's like trying really hard to like push that forward. I know Miami because I actually interviewed uh, the mayor and I know that he's been talking with like the DeSantis administration and everything like that to try to think through like what that looks like in a statewide level. But I think, again, this comes back to the ritual part of like what is a currency, what is not a currency, because you don't need something to be like, for example, you can't pay your taxes except for in the domestic currency that you're in. Right. Anyway, that doesn't mean that like the euro is not a currency for some people or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. It would have to be in the local government currency anyhow, even if, you know, if I had Canadian dollars, I couldn't pay Canada and US dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's just like a choice governments make. I think you're going to see more and more governments who are willing to accept taxation in the form of, and certainly like in terms of taxes, you know, Canada still taxes the proceeds from any sale of Bitcoin or Ethereum. So it's not like that particular part isn't like solved for either. But yeah. yeah, I mean, in terms of the charterless view, I mean, this will probably go down a rabbit hole. I just encourage people, if they're interested in terms of the money theory that you just described, I think like charterlism is what you're describing, which is basically like a state's sovereign currency derives its monetary value from the state's ability to tax in that, if you think about like, I guess you could call it domestic token. I call them domestic tokens. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean that one is a currency or not, just because that's like a ritual form. We have to go back to the basics, right? Like are people that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, storing in it, yeah, or people accounting in it. I mean, like simple example: the U.S. government can say that the U.S. currency is a powerful currency because that's the one that we accept our taxes in. And we have a lot of citizens, we accept a lot of taxes, big economy. So it's sort of, it's, it's a self-fulfilling cycle. So that actually makes sense. I want to go to questions here. There's a bunch of stuff that we um, sort of outlined ahead of time. I'm going to jump to any crypto companies that you think are doing really dumb things that you can discuss. Because obviously, yeah. up until now, we've talked about the positives. Tell me kind of what's happening on the negative side in the crypto world. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really, really dumb. I think like I... I thought a lot of the ICO stuff was really dumb. Explain um, the, the ICOs for the listener. The initial coin offerings, which were kind of just like these, I thought really like it was kind of banking on Ethereum. So Ethereum made it really easy for you to like kind of create your own tokens and governance. And I think the immediate use case, or at least the first use case of that was extremely dumb. There were a lot of companies that used it to raise funds from unaccredited investors that were frankly... Now, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the accreditation model. Because I happen to be someone who thinks that, you know, if you have a government that's letting you gamble in a casino and that is encouraging you to buy lottery tickets in order to fund schools, it's a little bit weird to say that you uh, can't 
invest in high risk areas. Yeah. That's my That's personal opinion. A whole, whole other topic. But yeah, so the initial coin offering was basically the analog to the initial public offering when a company goes public on a stock market like the New York yeah. Stock Exchange. That's what they do. Initial public offering happens every day. Initial coin offering was companies basically saying, Hey, we've got a million of our coins. I've got the John David's coin, and you can, yeah. I'm going to give a hundred thousand. I'm going to sell a hundred thousand of them, but I'm just doing it now. Was the ICO world totally unregulated? I mean, were they following regulations in some way? Well, I mean, now they are, or some of them are. I mean, certainly here in Canada, the Ontario Securities Commission and the SEC in the United States have definitely gone after ICOs for any number of reasons, right? Up to and including SEC is sued Ripple. I think that was one of the largest ones, right? So Ripple, the company behind uh, XRP, Ripple Labs. So yeah, I mean... The initial coin offerings were, I think what they tapped into is you have this like market of startup funds where you need to be an accredited investor and then you're getting like startup shares and then people got incredibly wealthy because pre-IPO on like Uber and Airbnb, there were all these people that held these assets, but no one really had access to that. And then the thing that ICOs tried to sell was they were trying to say, hey, like, you can join in, you can buy into these tokens, these like brilliant engineers and whatever. But a lot of the stuff was vapor. And really the way the incentive structure was created made no sense because you know employees were getting paid in these like tokens that were gonna get blown up. So I don't know how like enforceable it was in terms of vesting. You know, private company shares are vested and employees have an incentive to stay. In in cryptocurrency, it was kind of like there were these madhouse salaries and then there were these like madhouse. Things and I don't even know the projects led anywhere. If any of them were really that useful, so that was one big loss. Another one I would say is what we've seen recently with Celsius and like intermediaries that are trying to offer these like absurdly high yields without considering counterparty risk or anything else. What was Celsius? I read about this, but can you give an overview of what Celsius was? I actually am not like so. There's a whole part of this universe that I actually haven't done that much research into because I'm not as interested, but. It's essentially this idea that you could like park your Bitcoin or park your crypto and then get some yield on it, right? right. Uh, I don't know. Very. I think the annual is anywhere between like eight or ten percent, or much higher sometimes. So that, you know, you heard this thing about yield farming and stuff like that. I think it was just really dumb because what it did is it injects intermediaries in a system that doesn't need intermediaries, and then you're seeing all the problems that come with that because you have these companies that aren't well capitalized and then that are folding, and then they're seizing all the assets. And the one thing I would say to that also in addition is that people should be careful with the exchanges they're using because exchanges or companies like that are still intermediaries in the system. You could be using Bitcoin or Lightning or even Ethereum or other cryptocurrencies without using any of them. But there's this kind of like shadow system where they're offering yields in order to trap you into this. And I think it like doesn't it gets people who like don't understand counterparty risk. Like there's some companies like Terra, there's like Celsius, like they don't like what happens if the prices go down and they're like leveraged a ton. And we're seeing that because they're folding. And then yeah. not only folding, they're taking all their assets with them. Same thing with exchanges. Like those, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Right. So this gets into the discussion of price and value and the fact that there's a lot of speculation. Crypto yeah. enthusiasts, and one of the first things you said to me when we met was I asked you, what do you think of crypto prices going down? And you said, you don't really focus on price, which honestly was one of the most intelligent answers I've heard to that question. But I think a lot of people, it's fair to say, focus on crypto only because of price. 
So how do you balance the two? Like you say you're into crypto for non-monetary reasons, but I don't think others are. I mean, is everyone else looking at it wrong or are you just on a whole different playing field? I don't think people are looking at it wrong. So the reason why we're talking about this is because the network has grown, is because people want to like buy into it, right? So when I think about adoption, the number one thing about adoption is the price and price action. Like you mentioned, I don't expect a lot of people are coming into Bitcoin or Ethereum because of like the theoretical intricacies of like what's a currency, what's not a currency, and why currencies aren't wrongly defined or like whatever, right? I don't think people care about that that much. But I guess for me, I look at the network. It needs this to survive, but it's it's a fire of sorts because when there's a lot of speculative activity, it actually gunks up a lot of the promise of of certain things. So what I would say is that like it's sometimes it's better to look beyond the price. Like now, price is lower, right? People are quote unquote in a bear market. Although I would point out, like, not I mean, I don't want to talk about it too much, but like, you know, if you're earlier enough, like nothing is a bear market, yeah. right? Because, you know, for example, you have these people who are mining when Bitcoin was like a cent each or whatever, right. or like two cents each. So for them, they will never 20 grand is still pretty good per coin. Yeah, it'll never it'll never be a bear market. Like the fact that it's made it so far already. So we have to do keep that in perspective too. Like this is a technology that's only been like, I would say solid like maybe 14 years or something like that, right? Nearing 14 years. So the thing is though, that what I've always found is when the price is really high is when I've actually thought I felt the least confident about what was happening. Like there was just all... I think it's a mix. I think you need... The network needs to grow because the whole premise is that it will become more scarce it will be valued more. That's why people are talking about it. That's why people are adopting it. The hope, I think, is that people are not just buying and hodling, but also, on top of that, learning about the ecosystem, why this matters. I think the principles of Bitcoin are so important to learn our age, like digital security, digital privacy, why decentralization really matters, how the protocol matters. So you get like a function of the people who care about the price who then care about this set. The problem is, is like when it's overheated, a lot of good stuff gets gunked up, like transaction fees get really high. Then people get really angry and mad. And a lot of critics come out and, you know, there's all this stuff. And then price goes down inevitably just because stuff goes up, stuff goes down, right? Bitcoin is pretty tied to like market conditions right now. Ironically, now that we're in a quote unquote bear market, I've never felt better about how things are being developed because I, I do feel like it resets it and like, now I'm listening to people with like really interesting projects who've been just like working and toiling on this and it doesn't really matter what price level it's at. But they're starting to hit, especially I think in Lightning Network, there's been like a lot of developments. And this is all stuff that happened in 2017, 2018 with like different forks or different proposed forks in Bitcoin. And it's like now it's coming out. So it's all this stuff that like people don't really talk about except for, I guess, obscure corners of the internet. But slowly but surely that's kind of building out. And there's now projects where you see Lightning being integrated not only in payments and authentication and like all kinds of other things. So I I'm think... Sorry, that, what, what, what is Lightning? You mentioned that a few times. What, what does that mean? Right, right, yeah, I should stop and define everything. Um, so Lightning Network is kind of this idea in Bitcoin. I think it's a pretty brilliant solve. It's still scaling. And as a technology, there's still some issues. But the basic idea is that Bitcoin is expensive somewhat from an energy time perspective. Now, I think that expense is worth it. Other people might disagree. But a Lightning actually makes it such that you can go off-chain. So you can go off 
the 10 minute block discovery and you can put many transactions into like fewer ones. So then that way it allows you to transmit value without necessarily hit. So what that means in practice though, is that with lightning, you can send sats, which are micro units of Bitcoin. You can send them instantaneously. There is no like confirmation period that you have to wait for. And the transaction fees, I think I mentioned this before are much lower. And so I think Bitcoin is like store value. You have Mm -hmm. cold storage somewhere. And then lightning is like, Think about it as like Venmo, but even more than Venmo, right? It's like it could actually be much more than that because you're starting to see... At the end of the day, they're both protocols. So like how you use it, you can use it to transmit data as well as financial value, right? But in any case, all of this to say that the price is down, quote unquote, down now, and I have never felt better. It's not that I'm indifferent to the price or don't care about it. I understand it as a function of the growth, but I just occupy the space where I care more about like the underlying factors behind it, not the short-term speculation. But you do the short-term speculation to get people interested. And that makes sense. A lot lot of people that were, you know, throwing their money in there without any thought or or worries over the last couple of years, you know, have had a reckoning. And I actually think it's a good thing as well for the system. Let's jump into another area, a big topic also having to do with money, which is the idea that Crypto and Bitcoin in particular just seems so ripe for me as a money laundering tool. So if I was Pablo Escobar, I would love Bitcoin because I could just throw my billions in there. And there's probably, I mentioned this before the mic's heated up, you know, there's the idea maybe that there are a whole lot of billionaires in countries where maybe they don't want a lot of currency or assets in that country and they're putting it into, into Bitcoin. So is that a problem? And if so, how does it get solved? I've also found to be kind of an interesting way that people have talked about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. The first thing I would say is if you're Pablo Escobar, what you really want is the 500 euro note, which they discontinued (laughs) because for specifically this reason. The ultimate money laundering tool is cash, just because like cash is not really like how you use it to intermediate and interact with, you know, the system can be different. But if you find critical mass with cash, I think what we found is like you can find your way into, and and I don't want to get like too hung up on this. So I'll just briefly say that money laundering itself is like a very like Nixon in the seventies kind of like along with the untethered. So like what we define as money laundering is kind of interesting as well because there's transfers of value and what a state deems legitimate and non-legitimate. I've always found interesting. For example, the United States deems transactions from certain countries to not be valid. Right. Why, true. for example, like PayPal isn't present in Pakistan for yeah. like any number of reasons. But leaving that aside and that I'm not like a lawyer or anything, so I don't want to get into the intricacies of that. But the first thing I would say to that is just like cash is the perfect money laundering tool. And so what Bitcoin does and what cryptocurrencies do is by definition, what I've always found funny about this argument is by definition, the networks broadcast all transactions publicly. So like you can actually tell when large amounts of value are being transmitted. Yeah. Like not only can you tell, but like everyone in the world can, right? And, and now you're seeing like treasuries working with firms like Chainalysis who are like able to like look through and like follow these transactions down. So I've always found it like kind of a curious argument because it actually gives governments, because it's like a shared distributed ledger that all governments or not even all governments, any individual can access versus if you think about tracking money laundering now, you have to look through like all these private bank ledgers like throughout the world and any number of them, so let's say HSBC with Mexican drug lords could be doing some funny business and then it depends on the regulator in question. There's like this international multilateral 
organization. So actually, I think what Bitcoin does or should do, which I find really interesting, is it should create privacy or tend towards privacy for small transactions. But actually, it helps unearth big transactions in a way that the world can't see. So in fact, if there are these quote-unquote Russian or Chinese billionaires who want to reveal themselves, you know, you would be able to see at least their transactions. Now, it's hard to pin down who they are with the network or the way the network works. The network tends towards privacy, which is where I, I get the argument a little bit more. But I also think that money laundering itself, it's kind of like an interesting argument to make because the network is very transparent for the transactions people should quote unquote care about, right? Or government authorities should quote unquote care about. And ultimately, I think of it as a hedge more because I do think central banks are going to release their central bank digital currencies. And I think those are going to be like, you won't have any choice on how you KYC into those in order to transact into them. So the Bitcoin network, you know, you can join the network with an IP address. That's fine. That's malleable. That's transistible. I get the under argument that makes it harder, quote unquote, to go after people who are moving large sums across the network. Mm-hmm. But I also think we need to pick and choose you know, our balance there. Right. Like, do we want to live in a world where every transaction, including our smallest transactions, are tracked to our exact identities? I don't think I want to live in that world. And so Bitcoin, I think, actually has like a good balance because within the network, within the case, there's all these small transactions that you want to fold and want to make private. I'll give you like an example right now that will maybe resonate with Canada. Right. Because Canada, you're trying to buy online abortion pills right now in the United States. And that's not a transaction that that's a transaction that can be folded into Lightning Network, right? And that can be private. And now that small amount might have implications for you, and you might disagree or agree with them, right? But versus when we're talking about money laundering, the network, you can just prioritize. You may actually be tending towards privacy for stuff like that, but then you also are tending towards transparency. It's kind of like, you know, transparency for the powerful, privacy for the weak, a little bit. It's not perfect, right. but a little bit elegant. Because if you're transacting large amounts of value on the network, well, then governments know. Right. So then if they're so interested and they think it's whatever their definition of money laundering is, then they're hiring firms like Chainalysis to go after those people. These are great points. I mean, I think you get into the same arguments with you have a tool and the tool is used for good and bad. And we see this with tools yeah. like Twitter and Facebook, and we see it with guns and firearms. In the right hands, it can cause incredible progress. And in the wrong hands, it can be terrible. But you're right in the sense that you have to have a balance between are we generally good with this or are we generally bad with this? And those problems are never easy to solve. It's the same thing with encryption, right? It's like, you know, state security, your police wants to be able to like get access to everyone's encrypted conversations or to solve crimes everywhere. But as a society, we've decided that's not the balance that we want. Yeah, that makes sense. So let, let's go into um, into the idea. I was listening to, I think it was Mark Andreessen or Chris Dixon or just the A16Z crowd talking about how this is the biggest or possibly one of the biggest innovations since the internet itself. So is there a case or what is the case to be made that crypto as a technology is as big and transformational as the internet? Well, so first, and I don't think A16Z, to the extent that if any of them are even listening to anything I say, is my biggest fan. But I do have to say that A16Z has an incentive to say stuff like this because they have like, huge, you know, $4 billion fund last I heard. Yeah. Yeah. They're backing all these projects. I mean, that part is the part where I would assign more like the dumbness where it's like, you have all these like 
LP funded funds, VC funds that are like decentralization, but like who's on the cap table, right? And then it's these yeah. things that are the big incentive to be like, this is the biggest thing ever because honestly, tokens are more liquid than private company shares and yeah. they're able to soak more people with it. Let, so me, I, let me just get in there because one of the things I was going to say, and you, you said it even better, was the idea that you're a venture capitalist, you've raised billions of dollars to invest in crypto. And the entire theory of it is that it's decentralized. There's no, everything is evenly yeah. distributed. So there's not going to be like a Facebook. There's going to be everybody benefiting from the value that it's derived in. So as a VC, why the hell are you investing in it? Like, I, I don't understand that, but you sort of said it yourself. Yeah. So there's that part. And I think those parts are like people who are trying to simulate. There's people who see the growth curve that came with an asset like Bitcoin. Bitcoin's just super unique because of the history of it, right? It's like this person took no VC funding that we know of. <laughs> uh, maybe DARPA. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> that disappeared, right? That essentially and has not spent the amounts that are in the wallets that are publicly attributed. But now you have like, you know, A16Z. So they have their own biased reasons for making that argument. They just want to make money off of like buzzwords, basically. I think that's like the most uncharitable interpretation. And I'm going to take that, which is they're just trying to say decentralization, Web3, everything with a different backend. Most people don't know what's going on in the backend, right? Of things. I'm interacting with you on Google Meet, like what data is being transmitted back and forth, right? Most people don't care as long as it works. So, Anyways, that said, I do think there are like, I think the thing that we have to think about is like the internet is actually like a set of protocols. And so in the narrowest sense of like Bitcoin is a protocol that is safe by default to store value, allows it to be really interesting and that tends towards like decentralization. And meaning in this case, for example, that like ideally, because I think this is one of your other questions, like ideally everybody's kind of running their own node. And everybody's running their own infrastructure. So everybody's kind of like, that's a really powerful image to me. It's like everybody's running their own credit card stack. Like you could, in theory, just like run your own kind of payments terminal yourself using Bitcoin, right? So that's like decentralization. And then also like, you know, instead of having it hosted, like there's all these data centers that are like in like the middle of like Washington, D.C. or Norfolk or whatever AWS stuffs them these days that are serving all the data back and forth between us. Instead, it's more of like a mesh network, right? Where it's like, we're talking to each other. So I think that's really powerful. So in that sense, I think like, not that like crypto is more powerful or is about as powerful as the internet. I think it's like the internet is a layer of protocols and then inherent in Bitcoin. And I think in developing in Lightning and in in certain other cryptocurrencies, I think mostly Bitcoin and Lightning. I will have to say I have over the years become more and more what they call like a Bitcoin maxi throughout the years, which is just someone who like is very focused on Bitcoin as opposed to other tokens. But regardless, I think there are protocols that can be useful for many other things. And in that sense, they could rebirth the internet in some ways, or we can think about how to re-architect the internet. Yeah, that makes sense. It does provide an, a layer that doesn't exist today that could solve a lot of problems. So I want to get into... There's, there's two more things here I want to kind of get into before we uh, wrap up. There's the argument, and as I've been talking to you, I can kind of understand that this argument probably doesn't bear water, but I'll say it anyways because it was in the news a while ago. But the argument that Bitcoin is a non-productive asset, it has no value. And Warren Buffett, the crazy grandpa from Omaha, I don't think that, but some people do, will say, well, I wouldn't pay $25 for all the Bitcoin in the world because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't produce anything. It can't feed anybody. It can't clothe anybody. So there's that argument. 
I mean, does that make any sense to you? Or do you think someone who says that just doesn't understand what they're talking about? Well, Warren Buffett doesn't feed or clothe anyone either, I would point out. <laughs> but, but, think, but you can make the argument that his companies produce something. A farm produces wheat. His companies, including Charlie Munger, produce a lot of Chinese state revenues, which are then used to commit genocide in Xinjiang. But in any case, yes. or in Pakistan, as some may call it. But in any case, look, I mean, the, the idea of non-productive... So first of all, those people who are the most permission people on earth are like the last people to ask about the value of a permissionless network, right? It's like, of course, a Warren Buffett or like any number of these people, they are used to being treated well by the government that they, and I would say governments now at this point, because they're Berkshire so heavily investing into China now these days too, that they're used to this model. They are the beneficiaries of this model of, let's say, the corruption that you were talking about. I will posit that that is kind of the Cantillon effect. They are the beneficiaries of when rates go down, their equity, their assets go up. They are the beneficiaries of the system. So of course they would see no value in, in something outside of it. But that's the whole point. It's like we don't need a Warren Buffett to do capital allocation in the way that he does and then to be compensated in the way that he is, Yeah, quite frankly. I also, one really huge bone I have against Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, I actually wrote this article. I'm sure they don't read me, but like I wrote this article about Charlie hey, Mike, Munger. Man, listen, you're in Forbes. They very well might read you. <laughs> well, I mean, I did write this article about how I thought Charlie Munger was softer on the Chinese Communist Party than Bitcoin, which I think is by all means true, right? But leaving that aside, that was kind of a little bit of a non-sequitur. But leaving that aside, what I will say is that both of them one bone I really have to pick with them is that I think Warren said something about how he doesn't invest in things he doesn't understand, but he doesn't go out and try to understand these things. I find that crazy. I find yeah. it crazy. We're in this like era where we are, there's so many scientific engineering advances. There's CRISPR-Cas9, there's like Bitcoin, there's all these things that are happening. And for someone to say like, the world works the way I want it to, and I'm just going to be shut off to everything, I think this is like philosophically poison. You know, he's called that rat poison. He's called Bitcoin rat poison, or at least Charlie Munger has. So I, I would submit that this philosophy, especially in the age that we live in, where we will need technology to solve all of these fundamental issues that we face, is just complacency and is just everything negative about civilization right now. But in any case. Yeah. No, listen. And you know what? One thing I've learned talking to you over the last hour is you make a very good point that you've got to look at the sources. So these respected people, and I use respected in quotes, because they've accomplished you know, a lot in their own realms in their own day. Look at Mark Andreessen, look at Chris Dixon, who are the venture capitalists in this. Look at Warren Buffett and look at Charlie Munger, who have a traditional what $500 billion market cap company publicly traded. Those are not the people who are incentivized at all to do X, Y, and Z to say, oh, everything's going to move to this decentralized thing. And so, I mean, I admit I am I'm a fan of Warren Buffett, but I guess on this point, he's not the guy to listen to. And that's something that I, you know, I would have said even before talking to you. Why would you listen to this guy who is not an expert, who's, who hasn't taken the no. time to actually investigate this as the voice of truth on the matter? It's also about the willingness, though. I think the closed-mindedness to it is what drives me crazy. But anyways, I understand. And yeah. it's cool to be a fan of Warren Buffett. I mean, I just, <laughs> I'm just extreme person from who knows where. Yeah. So, having me on the show, but <laughs> yeah, no, this is awesome. I'm really enjoying this. So let's finish off with this. In the perfect crypto future, what does the world look like to the average person? So, like, 
And just to set the scene, like if you had told somebody in 1985, like, hey, in 20 years, you're going to go onto this computer and search for whatever you want, they would have been like, what's a computer? What do you mean search? Like, I'm going to go on a scavenger hunt. So like, if we fast forward 20 years, what are people going to practically be doing with crypto day to day? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think that the ideal world looks like somewhere where everybody has is learning or learned and has control over the devices rather than devices controlling them when it comes to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And so I talked about a few examples, right? Like imagine a world where you're running your own payment stack. You are someone who... I'll give you like the charitable interpretation because I've also written about actually, for example, migrant caravan and stuff like that, right? So imagine a world where it doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter where you are, but you have... And it's closer than we think because people, even refugees, have access to the internet, have access to communications. And it's about having everyone in the world be empowered to own and create and build their own kind of networks. So I I think it's like the entire internet as a mesh network, instead of it being like held by these centralized companies that then hold like realms and realms of data and whose model is basically based on selling advertising to us to tie to this like traditional economy. I want to see a world where we all are independently thinking about the technologies that we're building, that we're all kind of contributing to networks of value and that we hold in our hands either you know the hardware or anything else that allows us to transmit value, data, information between ourselves freely. So that to me is kind of the ideal world. And are they interconnected? So like the idea of the internet is I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and I can connect with everybody else in the world on there too. In the crypto version, are we still interconnected in that same way? We are. And I think we're intermediated in different ways too. And I think like the thing that attracts me about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, I think that really got me at the beginning was that really it goes back to the principles of the early internet, right? I think that the internet now has become something that, and we've seen this in China, we've seen this in, in Russia with domestic regulators. I'm just painting these as an example because that will play well, I think. But those countries are holding the internet to control their peoples, right? And I think that the internet at the beginning was just this organic groundswell of people just connecting with one another. It was more anonymous and pseudonymous. People didn't feel like they had to like bring their analog lives into it if they didn't want to. Right. And I just want to go back a little bit to that, but then also add the fact that I think now we're adding this like ability to be able to create and maintain this digital network without a government, without an intermediary or without anything else. So I find that very powerful. That's a good note to go out on. Roger, this was awesome. Where can people uh, find you and read more? I mean, my Forbes profile, I think if you look up my name, Roger Huang, H-U-A-N-G, and then I'm always on Twitter, kind of rant and no one really follows, but Roger H-1991. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy episodes like this, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, follow me on Twitter at Real John Davids. We'll see you next time.